We'd like a word. About writing in Pakistan and India. This is part two with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we're in the studio with Avez Khan from Lahore, author of In the Company of Strangers and No Honour. You're writing something else, aren't you? I am, yeah. I'm writing a second book for Orenda. Uh, and uh, it's... That's a publisher, Orenda. Yeah. Really good publisher in England. Highly yeah. recommended. Everything they do is interesting. Absolutely. They're really, really good. Yeah. So I, I have a two book deal with them. So I'm currently working on my second book with them. And it's a little departure from what I usually write. <laughs> You'll say that everything I write is different. But uh, yeah. So this one's a, a science fiction. Uh... <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. But uh... <laughs> ah, you're right. It is. It is. It's it. No, no, no. It's just that it's not entirely based in Pakistan. So it's uh, you're going to see some of UK in, in this. So it's a little bit about the immigrant experience of Pakistanis in the UK. Are so, we in it? Are we? In it? <laughs> yeah, I can definitely consider that now. But uh, that was but, a, t- a tactful answer. It was very yeah. tactful. <laughs> I'll definitely consider that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I hope that people, uh, readers in the UK especially, will find it very relatable. So yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment. And mm. if I say anything more, then you know that that'll not be good for me <laughs> with the render. No, you'll get you'll get a slap. You'll get a slap. <laughs> you gotta you gotta keep it keep it KG. Yeah. Uh, do, do you know what you were saying about in part one? talking very interestingly, if you haven't listened to part one, about counterfeiting books, uh, that's such a big problem. Does that mean you are looking at a different audience then, inevitably, if people in Pakistan are going to read your books in their thousands or tens of thousands, but not actually pay for them, or you're not going to get paid for them, they'll, they'll pay counterfeiters, but not you. Does that mean you're relying on audiences outside Pakistan? I sure am. Um, I most of, I think ninety percent of my readers for No Honor are uh, based in the UK. Then most were reading my books, but uh, th- that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people must be reading my books in Pakistan, but uh, I don't see them in reviews. You see, that's how I judge who's reading my books. When I see the reviews or ratings or whatever, wherever the book is being uh, publicized, and you say there's no way of checking the figures either. No, you no. can't really tell. No, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, I'm based in Lahore, so all I can see is that it's available in Urdu Bazaar, which is a very sprawling place in Lahore where you can get all this stuff. But they're like, I don't know how many cities in Pakistan and they could all be selling these books. So it's very hard to know. Does that then, I mean, an issue with people who write in places that don't have such a thriving publishing industry or legitimate publishing industry is that they may alter what they write to appeal to a foreign audience rather than people who they live among? That is, yeah, that that could be an issue. I I mean, uh, when when you're writing, uh, when you're picked up by a UK publisher or a US publisher, naturally there will be some changes that they won't want you to make because obviously they they're looking at it from a business perspective. Yes, there is a responsibility that you have to produce good stuff that is diversity and promote it and all of that. But at the end of the day, they also have to sell their books, so it has to be something that the other people understand. In a way, you know, some words or some phrases, you can't really... What have you had to change? Um, I haven't had to change anything as such, but I did have to sort of italicize a few phrases here and there so that that would be more people would understand it better. And also, uh, when you write a statement in Urdu, for example, you write the translation right next to it. I mean, if I were writing in Pakistan, I wouldn't do that. But now, if for, for a UK audience, I will write that line in Urdu and then I'll write the translation next to it so that people can understand. 
I suppose there's a little yeah. bit of extra exposition as well sometimes because, yeah. you know, things that people in Pakistan are very familiar with may not be familiar with here. So you've yeah. got to do a little bit more explaining, yeah. etc. You know, yeah. I, I'm just thinking things like festivals or what the yeah. what the traffic is like yeah. or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, and, and it does cause a little offence to people in Pakistan because I remember someone was raising objection with the fact that I'd italicized a, a, a word called dupatta, which is, means a scarf in Pakistan. And uh, I, I was like, you know, it's just that everyone has to be able to understand it. So, I mean, obviously, Indian and Pakistanis would have no problem understanding what a dupatta is. But people in the UK or US or, uh, you know, Australia, Africa, anywhere, they would have a little bit of problem. So that's why it's italicized for them. Sometimes people fear that, and it could be applying to anybody in any country, in Ireland or Pakistan, it doesn't matter, that you either give a sanitized version of uh, of Pakistan in your case although reading no honor I don't think you are but maybe you are and I don't even realize because I've never been to Pakistan I've looked at it from a few feet away oh. at uh, the Wagga border post Wagga border. in Punjab and on the Indian side or that you might sort of make it misrepresented in a way to make it seem grimier and more vivid and glamorous you know, change it in, in one way or another to appeal to a foreign audience mm. So if someone local was reading it, they'd be wincing or embarrassed or, or cross. Yeah, I mean, of course. Uh, but what we have to understand is that the people who would be wincing would probably be the 1% or 2% or 5% of population in Pakistan. For the rest of them, for a significant proportion of them, this is the reality. So just because it makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's not happening there. So whatever I wrote in No Honor, I spent three years researching it so that obviously it's a work of fiction, of course, and there is a certain, certain creative liberty that I took. But at the end of the day, this stuff does happen. A lot of stuff like public honor killings. On We don't even know what's going on in uh, certain rural areas of Pakistan. They're so obscure. They're so uh, they're not really that present, uh, you know. And um, so we don't really know what's going on in most uh, in a lot of places of Pakistan. So just because it makes a few people uncomfortable doesn't mean that, you know, one should shy away from shining a light on these kind of things. But is there anything else that's sort of taboo that you feel you shouldn't or you can't write about? Or, or, or do you generally feel fairly free to be able to talk write, write about most things? The problem is that a lot of people don't read uh, English novels in Pakistan, so you're pretty safe in writing whatever you want, generally. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I uh, Whatever I've wanted to write, I've gone ahead and written. I haven't really thought of what the repercussions would be or whether there will be any repercussions or not. So I've just went ahead and gone with whatever I wanted to do because I think then what's the point of being a writer if you're just going to sit scared and at home and, you know, what if I say this and what if this happens, what if that happens? So... I don't really believe in that. I mean, if there's an idea in my head, then I'll go ahead and write it and uh, I'll worry later about what will happen. <laughs> what about people around you? Because I know I had people around me voicing concern about what I was going to write about and strongly encouraging me not to do it. Is that something you've experienced? Well, um, like I said, a lot of people I know don't read books, so they don't really know what's going on. But yeah, obviously, there is always a concern that, you know, don't say the wrong thing. But I believe that I, I've i never really said the wrong thing. I mean, I've just uh, shown a light on what's going on in society. And uh, I just tried to make Pakistan a better place through my books. I mean, especially with no honor within the company. I don't know. That was just uh, uh, my debut. But I don't know. I, I've never really thought of that. Uh, and Pakistan does get a lot of bad press, I think. It, things are not that dire in Pakistan at all, I think. And you can 
write about social issues without any repercussions. Okay, well, that's quite interesting. I mean, we're learning a lot about uh, the situation for writers in Pakistan, but what about neighbouring India? Paul, you've got a bit of an insight into this. So I've spoken to a couple of writers for this episode, Vikram Chandra and Amitav Ghosh. Let's hear from Vikram Chandra first. He's, I suppose he's Indian-American, you'd say. He won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize in 1996 for Best First Book, Red Earth and Pouring Rain. He's originally from New Delhi and lived in various places in Rajasthan and Mumbai and the United States. I suppose what he's most famous for is a book called Sacred Games, which was made into a Netflix series that everyone in India seemed to be mad for. And it's like 900 pages, the book, and it's kind of dark betrayal and layers under layers and secrets in Mumbai featuring this a policeman who's trying to get to the bottom of a mystery. Anyway, let's hear from Vikram Chandra. Vikram Chandra, you've won prizes, you've written loads of novels, you've written stories, you've written a, a feature film, Mission Kashmir. You're probably most well known for sacred games, although you've also written non-fiction about computer programming. What are you working on at the moment? I'm really superstitious, like many writers, about talking about current work. It's a secretiveness that comes also out of the fact that you don't know what the hell you're doing when you're writing. Uh, you're groping around. So I will say, though, that it's a novel, but a novel that uh, I'm currently calling a novel in three acts. So it's three stories separated by time and location, and it's hard to write, <laughs> but oh. I'm having fun. OK, well, that's 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 good to hear. Thank you for revealing that much. For new or aspiring writers, what advice would you give? What's worked for me really well all my life are two related things. First is follow your obsessions. If something hurts you, if something stays with you, go with that. It has energy. It's trying to tell you something. And then the other thing is please, please ignore that often repeated maxim, write what you know, write what you don't know. Whatever you're curious about and know little about, go and find out stuff about it, and that'll give you material that'll sustain you over the years of writing a novel. It'll certainly distract you from getting on with it. Research can be an endless, endless <laughs> trapdoor. Yeah. yeah, I have a tendency to get lost in that, and I sometimes think I'm doing this just to avoid writing, but it pays off. Okay, I want to ask you as well, what you have been reading at the minute and what you've particularly enjoyed? I've recently read Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. And I would recommend that to everyone who's listening. It's a story about a 24-year marriage at the point at which we, we first start encountering this couple. And it's dazzling in its prose, in its poetry, and in its depiction of character and the complications of a long-term relationship. Highly, highly recommended. Okay, and tell us the, the name and the author's name again. It's Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff, G-R-O-F-F. Vikram Chandra, thank you very much. So, Vikram Chandra, I should say I did speak to him a little while ago. I was interested in his superstitious approach to not revealing what he's working on. Do you feel like that, Steve? Or are you happy to say... 
It's going great. This is what I'm doing. There's no superstition because there's nothing superstitious about me in anything. I, ha- I have no superstitious beliefs whatsoever. I'm, I'm sometimes a bit cagey if I've got a good idea and I'm worried someone else will beat me to it. Because it's happened a couple of times before. I mean, I, I many, many, many years ago, I started working on a novel. It was around the time that social media was first starting when we had Friends Reunited, if you remember, came along and then followed by MySpace. And I had the idea of having a bunch of friends reunited after 20-odd years of not seeing each other, they've kind of been forced back together because they, they all share a sort of secret guilt in the fact that they were responsible for the death of one of their school friends and they got away with it, basically. No one ever discovered it was them and they've come back together again and they've all got very different lives now and some of them are likeable people, some aren't very likeable, uh, but they're sort of bonded together by the fact they've got this little guilty secret. But what actually brings them together is when someone creates a social media profile for the person they supposedly killed ah. and that profile starts saying hey out you you guys out there you know who i'm talking to i know what you did and they have to try and sort of pick it all apart and work out See, who this, this book person sounds is. very familiar well the problem is <laughs> the problem is i, I got about sixty thousand words into it started punting it around had a couple of publishers uh starting to nibble at it and then one publisher came back to me and says this sounds an awful lot like Past Mortem, which we're handling, which is written by Ben Elton. It comes out next month. And sure enough, Ben Elton's Past Mortem came out with almost exactly the same book. It's one of those things where two people have seen the same thing and have gone for it. And of course, Ben is a much bigger, much more famous name than me. He would never have known that I was working on it as well. Of course he wouldn't. And I didn't know he was working on it. But the point is that there's always that thought if you have that one good idea and you tell someone... You know, particularly in, in open broadcast, like on a podcast or something like this, that someone out there thinking, oh, well, I've got that same idea. I'd better get mine out there first. Mm. And they'll rush and get it to the publisher while you're still, you know, sort of halfway through your 100,000 words or whatever. So it's not superstition with me so much as damage, damage limitation and caginess. Yeah. Plus, of course, as you were saying just now, uh, sometimes your publisher it tells you to shut up and keep quiet about it as well, you know. Do you uh, share what you're writing as you're writing it, like with members of your family or, or close friends? Well, I used to, but listening to Stephen, now I think I shouldn't. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I have never really felt that. Uh, I mean, I never really tell anyone that much as, uh, at all. But but yeah, it's always a, a a fear that someone will go ahead and write it first, whatever your idea is. I think being a Pakistani, I'm somewhat a little safer because we have fewer writers coming out of Pakistan, but still, uh, you never really know. So, yeah. What about the whole research thing? You said, I think with no honour, that you did research for a yeah. number of years. and, and uh, Three Vikram, years, I think. Vikram yeah. was saying he's quite into that too. I did as well before I wrote Blackwater Town. Plug Blackwater Town, Blackwater Town. It's great, you should buy it. I wrote it. But before that came out... You know, you're just endless distraction and you're never quite ready and doing more research. I kind of have a completely different attitude now. I almost prefer to do almost no research before I write it and then do what research I need later. Yeah, the the, the big thing for me was my, was my dad, my late father, who's been dead 30 years now. But But he always wanted to write a novel and he got so seduced by the research. Now, bearing in mind, he was writing this pre-internet so his research involved writing letters to people. Uh, it involved going to libraries. It involved trawling through books and things like this. But he was determined to get the... It was a, it was a murder mystery. 
um, and he was he was a homicide detective himself. So he was he was and he was friends with a well-known writer. Yes, yes, he knew Daphne du Maurier quite well. Oh, and uh, yeah, and and he was writing from his perspective of having been a homicide cop. He sort of combined two really quite tricky cases he'd worked on in his career, but then set them in an historical context in Cornwall, which is where I come from. And he just spent years. I mean, it seemed to me, you know, five years, six years doing the research for this. And I said, Dad, you need to start writing it. You need to start writing now. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And then he finally started writing, got three chapters in and died of a sudden heart attack. So he never got to finish it. And that was a salutary lesson to me. I've, I've always been more of a, what we term a pantser. I fly by the seat of my pants. I, I know where the story needs to end up. It's like I know I've got to get from London to Edinburgh, but I've got the sat-nav turned off and I'll take a meandering route, not quite sure how I'm going to get there. And I may discover some interesting things on the way. Uh, But it's not prescribed, you know, that this is how I'm going to get there by going here, here, here and here. I I do enough to start writing and then I research on the hoof just to make sure that I get... Yeah, as needed to make sure I get my facts are correct. Because it, it is very seductive, isn't it, research? It's it's that rabbit hole is extraordinary. Well, how, how did you find it? I, I mean, maybe in the company of strangers, a lot of it you already were familiar with from your, your working background and your life. But I guess, you know, rural forced marriages and killing of young girls who get pregnant, that was outside your experience. Absolutely. Um, uh, like Stephen said, uh, I am a bit of a pantser myself. And within the company of strangers, that's what I did. But with no honor, I felt that uh, I couldn't uh, just go ahead and write whatever came to mind because all yeah, I mean it is fiction, but still, it has to be relevant. It has to be uh, people, uh, the people who know what's going on in rural Pakistan. What if they read the book and they're like, "What is this nonsense?" So, so that's why I I went to rural Pakistan. I interviewed people. I um, I did whatever I could, whatever resources I had. I used them in order to make sure that it's an accurate portrayal of what's going on in uh, rural Pakistan. So I felt that was very important if I had to make a statement like this. Uh, How was that when you rocked up at some rural village and with the knowledge that the people there would at at some stage find out why you were there and it wasn't to make them look good? Um, You know, the funny thing is that uh, people were actually pretty thrilled to know that they were being researched. So I mostly spoke to uh, women so they were very keen on telling whatever is going on. And usually the connection you make is that if you know someone in the city who has connections in rural Pakistan, they'll take you there because you can't just go barging into rural Pakistan expecting people to speak to you. They'll never do that. So you have to make a connection first and then that connection tells them, OK, it's nice. It's OK to talk to this person. And then they'll op- start opening up. But even then it takes them a little while to really get going. And then you sort of have to figure out which ones are telling the exact truth and which uh, which among them are hiding stuff. So it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a trial to fi- uh, figure out exactly what's going on. But uh, but yeah, that's a kind of universal thing, isn't it? I mean, if if you go into some states in America and for, and let's say you're from the East Coast and you go down to somewhere in the Southern states and that you get treated slightly suspiciously if you just go yeah. blundering in there asking questions about their way of life. I suppose it would happen in the UK as well, wouldn't it? Really, if you go to the deepest, darkest, I don't know, Norfolk or somewhere, if you come out from London and say, "Yes, I'm interested in finding out all about what goes on round here," yeah. Or if you went to the golf club round my way, people might think well, I haven't seen you round here before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's your agenda? People are quite protective of their communities. You know, if somebody reads your book or hears about it and thinks, oh, gosh, that sounds really terrible. I'd like to find out more or I'd like to do something to help. 
Have you encountered any organization that might fit the bill? There are several, yeah. But mostly, uh, you know, there a lot of them are based in the cities. So the work they're doing in rural Pakistan is that they send people out from the cities to work with them and everything. But they, even then, they're regarded with suspicion and everything. I know that the ED Foundation is doing a lot of work. I mean, they do a lot of work for emergency rescue services uh, service as well. But uh, they also work on uh, rehabilitation and uh, trying to make the lives of women better. And there are several small groups of uh, uh, non-profit organizations and they're trying to do a lot. The problem is that in Pakistan, you can't even go to several places because there are parts of rural Sindh, for example, where women walk 12 miles, 15 miles a day just to get water. So how on earth can you actually go there? You know, there's no way to go there. So it's a, it's a bit of a, a conundrum, I guess, when you're uh, uh, researching something like that. And uh, I, I mean, I've heard rumors that in parts of rural Sindh, people don't even know yet that Benazir is dead and they're still voting for her party because they think she's still alive. So you can just imagine. So that's Benazir Bhutto, former prime minister of Pakistan, who was assassinated in 2007. They may not have heard that news is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard rumours. I mean, I don't know for sure, but yeah. It's not po always possible to go to the most far-flung areas of Pakistan at all if you're living in the city. And if that's the case, what what's the, the state of affairs in terms of law and order or justice in those sort of areas? So what happens is that they have a, usually have a jirga slash panchayat system uh, where the village elders just get together and do they do whatever they want. And that's right. what happens in no honour as well because... The police don't don't have any jurisdiction there because obviously these are these are small villages we're talking about. So police station would have like five or six people at most. How can they look after that entire those hamlets and everything? So they have very limited power. So the power rests with the village elders and that whatever they say, whatever they decide is basically set in stone. So mm. what was the name of that organization you mentioned? E.D.? E.D., yeah, yeah. So how do you spell that? E.D.H.I. E-D-H-I. They, they're kind of like the biggest organization in Pakistan, I think, if I'm not mistaken. They're doing a lot of stuff across a wide range. That seems like a good place to end part two of this Weed Like a Word. And in part three, we'll be hearing more from Indian writer Amitav Ghosh and from our studio guest. Aves Khan. Yes, Aves Khan, <laughs> the, very, the very modest Aves Khan, will be here with us in part three.